This podcast is sponsored by Canoe Club. Canoe Club has been one of my favorite retailers for such a long time, so it's a real honor to have them, you know, sponsoring the pod. If you're unfamiliar with Canoe Club, it's a retailer based out of Boulder, Colorado that carries brands such as, you know, Engineer Garments, Visvim, Capital, Nanamika, Levi's, Orslo, you know, Friends of the Pod, Marnie, Solomon, and Popeye Magazine, and so much more. They have such an incredible assortment, you know, ranging from under-the-radar emerging brands to beloved heritage brands. I had the founder of Canoe Club, Timothy Grindle, on the podcast, which I'll have linked in the description if you're interested in learning more about the retailer. I'll also be showcasing some of my favorite pieces on the Fashion Collective Instagram, as well as in the weekly newsletter. very kind to offer a 15% discount code for all the Fashion Collective podcast listeners. Use code FashionCollective15 to get 15% off your next order. Again, it is FashionCollective15 to get 15% off your next order. The link to the site will be linked in the description for you guys to head over and check out the assortment. Hello, I'm Alexander Walker of the Fashion Collective Podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a new listener, then thank you for taking the time to check us out. The Fashion Collective Podcast is a place for creatives to learn, share, collaborate, and support each other. Each week, you'll get in-depth interviews with creators talking about their creative process, inspirations, giving advice, and sharing their opinions on the major topics within the industry. Our mission is to create a space for creatives. If you have the time, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Hey, how's it going, Nee? I I'm good. I'm good. How's it going? Thanks for reaching out. Hey, thank you for coming on. I this is a brand that I've been following for quite a while, Post Imperial. So just happy to you know have you on to share more about it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm always uh, open to like having engaging with people, having conversations um, uh, when it comes to fashion or just my thoughts. I, I like to speak. <laughs> Talking about comes with being a professor, I think. Uh, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which we'll get into later on. I really want to get into, yeah. you know, being a professor. You know, starting off, you know, can you just share a little bit about yourself and, you know, what you do? Okay. Uh, my name is Ni Okubojo. I am a professor at Parsons. I teach fashion show design, um, fashion show production, actually, not fashion show design. Um, in, and then I also run a fashion brand called Post Imperial. It's a... Uh, a brand that I've been working on since kind of like 2012 and then really started moving on 2014, 15. Um, and we really focus on, there are three things that we really focus on. Um, first one is um, mythology, which is, you know, a collaborative way of storytelling. Second one is humanizing materials and working with materials that um, are collaborating with the materials that we work with to make products that you feel ethical. And then also the third one is connecting to the diaspora. And that is being able to be cultural translators of the diaspora and to create something that transcends 
cultures um, through the global village. And so all three of those things come together to make multiple futures that we believe in. Uh, and we all, all these things connect with one thing and it's all about collaboration and empathic design. You know, with empathic design, we're able to actually collaborate in many, with humans, with materials and then with different cultures as well. So Yeah, and we'll be getting into, you know, all of that over the course of the episode. You know, moving into segment one, tell ethos, how would you describe your, you know, personal style? You know, well, uh, it's a very soft tailoring. Like I like wearing suits, uh, but I, I like my suits to feel like pajamas. So that's all. In, if you look at the, the design um, uh, language we post in Perial, there's a lot of tailoring. We always we started off with telling, I started off with making ties and pocket squares right? Right. So I, to wear suits and dress up. But I always want my suits to feel like I can sit down with them and rough them up. I can wear them wherever they want to. It's all online, unstructured. There's no... Like there's no padding anywhere. So, you know, the suits feel like, feel like lived in. I, I always wear a blazer. I, I feel naked without a sports jacket. So the sports jacket is the foundation of my style, right? And, you know, from there, I work my way into other things. And, um, you know, so these days I'm into more loose up. And um, with the twin boys, you know, you know, I've gained some daddy weight. So um, I try to, you know, wear pants that are not like too, that don't really touch my thighs. I hate anything touching like my thighs and so i want i want to feel like loose um comfortable uncomfortable yeah. right but you know i still wear a lot of blazers everywhere i go and everything i do no i don't wear as much ties as i used to but you know i pair my my suits and my blazers with t-shirts or, or dress shirts turtlenecks whatever it is and then most of the shoes that i wear are usually very fancy like ballet kind of like loafers um, so I just like that kind of balance where, you know, um, I'm looks, I look like I'm ready to go to sleep with my, my, <laughs> my pajamas, but then, yeah. you know, I have these kind of like fancy, like, um, patent leather, like opera pumps. And like, for me, I just like that look. Nice. I love it. You know, moving into segment two, you know, what have you been obsessed with lately? This can be, you know, music, movies, books, brands, you know, TV shows, articles, pretty much anything. Um, Right now, I'm being very obsessed with, well, right now, I'm in the middle of working on Fall Winter 21. Um, I, I actually hate using, categorizing our collections now by season, just name them. But our newest collection, which you, that I'm working on right now, actually, the collection is going to be dropping soon. I'm, I'm still in that headspace a little bit. Uh, and I've been obsessed with looking and listening to talks by Francis Kerry. He's an architect. Um, based in Germany, and he has built quite a few projects um, all around Africa. And what I really like about his work is it feels very anti-colonial um, in the way that he works with the materials that he uses, the design language, you know, really speaks to the environment that he's working with. Uh, for example, he uses a lot of clay in his work um, within Africa. And, you know, for me, it's quite inspiring for him to, to see his process in that way because, you know, it allows me to kind of think about like how I want post to kind of move forward. Um, you know, as I see post as a tool to like kind of like go through the decolonial process. And um, so, yeah, so I'm very obsessed with his work. Um, I, the, new, the collection dropping soon was inspired a lot of, of, of by that work. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
just looking at like different like species of worship too as well and um you know different artifacts and tools that people use to kind of like cope through you know the pandemic that we're going through right now so that's the headspace i'm at in that moment but for like the next collection i'm working on i've been very obsessed with fractals um so because fractals are very um in terms of like african cultures fractals are something that uh it's very it's, it's a big thing in African cultures, whether it's the way we build our buildings, whether it's the way we think up in philosophy, you know, it's something that I've been looking at as well. And I'm very, very interested in um, how the, what role they play in African way of life. And it's, when I say Africa, in, in this, I don't like to kind of generalize Africa in many instances. Yeah. But with fractals, for some reason, um, with all the research that they've done, it's something that really, really resonates with almost every African culture or every culture within African diaspora. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, um, I've been into, obsessed with like a lot of jazz lately. Nice. I was very obsessed with jazz, but then kind of fell off and then got back to it because it seems like there's a, a big revival from, especially jazz musicians from the UK, like Shabaka Hutchins. Um, I'm trying to think of, um, Alpha Mist, a few of that, like, yeah. like Graham McCacken, I, I think I, I didn't say his name right, but there, there are quite a few of them. And um, yeah, I've been really, really interested in their work because, you know, one thing about jazz, it feels like a, it, it feels like it was one of those mediums that, you know, us in the diaspora were trying to use as a, some sort of like alchemic spell to kind of like transpose ourselves into like what we call like, some Afrofuturists, like, so trying to figure out what Afrofuturism is. And I feel like a lot of us trying to use jazz as that kind of, like, as an alchemic property to get to that point. You know, just, like, you look at someone like Sun Ra or even, like, Miles Davis himself, right? So um, I've been into a lot of jazz because that's the headspace that I'm in. And then also I've been listening to a lot of techno too as well, again. These are, like, things that I fell off from a while ago, like, I think maybe three or four years ago, and was just mainly listening to, like, rap hip-hop but like now i'm getting back into that space um the book that i'm reading is called silo blueprint zero waste blueprint uh, it's about uh i can't remember the name of the author i want to say his name is Matt. i can't remember his name but it's a really interesting book because it, it talks about it's based on a restaurant in london called silo and it's a the first zero waste restaurant meaning like there are no trash cans in the restaurant like wow. none, none. So that for, for them to have no trash cans means that they figure out what to do with everything. So there's no right. Way, right. And so it's very inspiring. And it's, it, you know, I, I'm reading it just to figure out like, you know, what things I can take away and add into my own practice as well. Yeah. I'm yeah. adding that to my list. I'm going to check it's that a out. Good book. It's, it's really short too. It's a short book. And it's really fast. So okay. actually really, I have a book club with one of my friends and we, you know, every Sunday, we sit back and like we read a few chapters and we talk about it. So yeah, you know, moving into you know segment three, you know, rapid fire, just giving your quick opinion. You know, one of the things I want to get into something that we were talking about actually before, you know, we started recording. You know, just everything with you know retailers now. You know, we recently saw the Prada deal with you know Net-A-Porter, where you know Net-A-Porter will be you know moving into more of an e-commission model, so they'll just get like. Yeah. A commission mm -hmm. or per sale of you know Prada and Miu Miu. You know, what are your thoughts on that? 
you know. I, I just think everything right now is so fragmented. There's no, I don't think there is going to be one standard way of uh, working anymore going forward, which I think is fine. You know, I, like I said, I'm very about multiple futures and like this kind of singular future that we had for fashion for such a long time was, was um, constraining. There were so many people, you know, when, when I say singular future, it was that kind of wholesale model, right? Where every, most people, like, they felt like in order for them to be successful, they have to do the wholesale model where they have to sell to retail stores, right? And retail stores have a certain calendar that you have to follow, right? And so you're on this wheel constantly, right? And if so many people wanted to get off that wheel because it wasn't something, it was, they were constantly chasing, right? I was constantly chasing and it becomes exhausting and you get a burnout. And what COVID did was allowed people to get off the wheel. And it's like, okay, what else can we look at? What else can we see, right? So dropship is another model that people are trying to do, which people have been trying to do for quite some time, but it's like, how does it work? How would it work? You know, they have websites like Garmentory, uh, I think uh, Farfetch to a degree does uh, dropship, uh, but there are quite a few other like companies that have been doing dropship for quite some time. Um, I'd say, you know, also with DTC, which is direct to consumer, that people are now looking into as well. I feel people are being more into because, you know, it's more margins for you to keep. But the takeaway from there is that there's more risk on your side, right? Because right. you have inventory, right? People don't think about that. And then you have to do the marketing. You have to do all those things. Whereas the wholesale, you just drop the products and it's the, the stores that have to deal with the marketing and like getting rid of the inventory. Right. So, um, yeah, but I mean, so there are so many different things. I think this product deal is, is a big deal for a big corporation because I don't think there's ever been a, like a major corporation that would necessarily do something like dropship. It almost feels like how brick and mortar stores have deals with big stores. It feels like a virtual version of consignment. Whereas like, you know, yeah. if you at, like if you look at big department stores and you see like, freestanding like you see like gucci in like in macy's in, in in um 34th street they have a big like freestanding store right usually gucci's paying for that space right and they they fill in their own inventory and whatnot and then macy's i think gets a cut so it kind of feels the same thing like they're doing here it's just virtual and i think prada has been trying to control their own um supply chain for quite some time now kind of similar to what nike did where nike just kind of cut everybody else and just left only like about 40 retail partners. They, they cut everyone except for like, they think they only have 40 retail partners that you deal with now. So it's kind of like the same thing, but I, I just, I think right now, long story short, there, is, there isn't really a thought to have on what's happening in retail now because nobody knows what's happening in retail right now. It's all very up in the air, right? And what comes out and what settles out that, like what, what we, do we have after the dust settles? I don't know. I just think that going forward, there isn't going to be just one way to deal with something or work on something. That um, people who are not even dealing with like doing seasons anymore, they have just different jobs. Right? right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that streetwear brands have always like kind of like um operated like that. Operated, but but yeah. if you notice a lot of streetwear brands, just because they want to seem legit, they started transitioning into that seasonal thing. Right. Exactly. I uh, see like something like Brain Dead. Brain Dead has like seasons as well, which, but I think right now there's just everything's up in the air. Everything. It's just like no one can really say that this has to be this because you can 
put this plan, these plans down, and then another lockdown happens, and then what happens, right? And so, like, you have to change your plan again. So, yeah. nothing. I just think everything is kind of like is 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 just in flux right now, and so we don't know what we have right now. We just have something where everyone is just trying to figure it out. Yeah, and for you, I mean, personally, with the brand, do you are you pausing on like adding any new stackist at the moment, or are you kind of just like seeing how things shake out? No, I, the funny thing is that the stockists have come to me. <laughs> I haven't really looked for that many stockists. They've come and they wanted to work with me. It was funny that like for a while, most of our like distribution was in Japan, but now it's shifting more into the West. So it's shifting more to UK. So we're going to be in matches right now. Uh, we are going to be in a few other Western stores uh, really, really soon. So Bergdorf, Mr. Porta, so like they, but they all, you know, they all came, right? So it's been an interesting process to see the transition happen. It's like, oh, okay. So like now we have like a big following here, right? Um, but it's, um, yeah, it, it's not like we're necessarily trying to slow down, but we're just, we're growing. Um, you know, this, I think last year was the first time we actually had a proper team. So for the, for as long as the brand has existed, it's mostly been me that's been operating everything. Uh, I've had friends and, and like mentors and people who helped with other things, right? But most of the execution fell on my, my hands. Uh, but now we have people who actually work with like, we have a director of operations, we have someone who's doing the sales, we have someone who's helping with production. But I'm glad I actually went through all those things because like I understand how the whole thing works, right? But yeah, it's, it's not like we are slowing down or anything it's just at the moment there is, there are some eyes on us and some activities happening and we're responding to that yeah that's really great news to hear you know i'm glad to hear that the brand is you know continuing to grow even during these times yeah i know it's it's weird because like when we put in production for fall winter 20 the jollof collection that we just dropped i, I keep using seasons i need to get out the habit of doing that but <laughs> when we dropped the jollof collection during production we did not order that much for our inventory because it was in the middle of COVID. So you know the, the production cycle is a six-month cycle. So we were putting in production around like in the in the middle of the lockdown. And so we're like, no one's going to buy this stuff. That's what we thought. And then we dropped the stuff and everyone's like, well, this sold out, that sold out, that sold out. Like, you know, so we've learned much more. We've learned from that collection that people really want to engage with that product so um, we are really focused on like building out our direct consumer as well and it's funny because it's like i'll tell them like well you don't i don't have it anymore but you can go to my one of my retail partners to get it and be like no no we want to get it from you okay. wow you actually hear that wow yes <laughs> and I'm like, okay cool right yeah. so it's like we have a following like i knew we had a following in japan Right. I just, you know, we started having following here. So, you know, from there, um, we just, you know, are going to be much more, we're now much more mindful about that. And, you know, for the new collection that's dropping, we definitely are taking into account that demand. And so we, we definitely are going to be um, more aggressive, I'd say, about our DTC. Or more mindful, we're focusing a lot more on, I'd say, yeah, we're focusing a lot more on our DTC than we usually are. Usually it's more on the wholesale part, but I mean, even wholesale has, wholesale has been good, we're going to be focusing on the DTC part too as well. 
Wow, yeah, that's really interesting. And it seems like that's like what people want and also it just makes the most business sense. Yeah. Moving into the second thing I wanted to get into, I know you recently were on a panel kind of discussing something like this. You know, what do you feel about, you know, African, you know, fashion brands getting, you know, being represented in the in the global sphere of uh, the fashion? Uh, I don't know, good and bad. I, I think I would like to see them be represented with autonomy and not some sort of gaze of how African brands are supposed to look like. You know, they, I feel like sometimes when they choose certain African brands, there's an algorithm that they're looking for. Like, you know, like what kind of prints are they using? Who are they referencing? So you notice like a lot of African brands that choose the old kind of look similar. So it's like all of them are all inspired by Malik Sibidi or, you know, they have it, they, they take their pictures in a certain way, certain textiles that they're using. I don't know if I fall into that category. Sometimes I feel like I do and sometimes I feel like I don't. Um, I think it's the reason why like when they do make these lists, I don't necessarily, sometimes I, I'm not in those lists, but I think what's good about it is that those brands get to have recognition for what they do because a lot of them do dope stuff, right? But at the same time, what is like we should explore the power dynamics of, as to what that platform is and like does the, the person who you are giving that platform do they have autonomy uh, or do they have some sort of like uh, sovereignty where you know they're only doing it because of some sort of parasitic relationship that they have with you right and then vice versa yeah. sort of having a symbiotic relationship right and so because if, if you if you make that decision based on some prior paradigms like I need to do this with this person because they can give me this, then you're not really free, right? Yeah. You're bound to whatever they because if if um they can give you that power and they can take away that power, right? They can take away that platform and then what happens, right? And so I think this is the challenge with when people talk about like inclusivity and like a seat at the table, um, it's not something that in my opinion, it's a great thing, but I don't think it's something that we, we should like put all our eggs in that basket, right? Because once you do that, you are giving too many institutions power that you have, right? Um, and you are deciding, you are making them decide your future, right? I had to learn this the hard way because when it wasn't cool to be an African brand and I would like, you know, talk to some editors or talk to some stores and they, they could not give, they couldn't care who I was or what my brand was wow. or the fact that I was African or it was, it was you know, has some connection to the, to the continent. Um, mm -hmm. And I would always be like, you know, I just need that seat at the table. I need this, I need that. And then one day I was like, why am I chasing these people? Why? They obviously don't care. They obviously don't think my, I have any value. Yeah. And the people who are paying attention to me was Japan. And I was like, let me just continue focusing on Japan. And I went, well, it, I just focused on that. And, you know, it, it, it was based on that action, right? It came from a quote that I remember that my uncle told me a long time ago, which is go with the goers, right? And so that's something that like, at that moment, I just thought, was like, this company doesn't want to go with me. I can't force them. Like, there's no, I can't. That's it, what it is for me. I can't. And if I try to force them, it's not going to be genuine. 
So I'm just going to go with whoever. And, you know, eventually they all came back. You know, they all like all the um, publications, like all of them. I, I would say the only ones, the only publication that I know from the, from day one that has been down with me is GQ. Yeah. GQ. They've been down from day one, right? Um, they just liked what I was doing. Right. One, everyone there, right? And so, and it doesn't even matter who the regime was, you know. I know we're watching right now is there, but before you were watching the regime of Jim Moore, Jim Moore, yeah, who, they were they were down with me from day one, right? And he so, appreciates good tailoring. Yeah, yeah. So like they really, really liked what I was doing, right? But like all the other publications, it, they were just either very dismissive or very condescending, and I just was like, why am I bugging myself? Or some stores who, you know, I wanted to be in and like, you know, because all my friends were in this store and it's like, if I'm in this store, I'll get validation. And they never, you know, um, they never looked at me. And here I am thinking I don't have validation. And meanwhile, I mean, like, how many doors in Japan? But because I didn't get in that one store, I don't feel like I'm validated. And I'm like, <laughs> you know. It's ridiculous. It, like, look how successful I am. And yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, I, I had to kind of shift my focus and be like, look, if these institutions don't want to like give me their platform, I'll make mine. I like I feel like I had to kind of go around a lot of people instead of going through because there were so many doors that weren't necessarily open. So I just had to kind of like, and I feel like a lot of designers of color have to go through that. And you know, sometimes we get very hung up on being on the seat at the table. The reality is, you know, it it might it, first of all, it's yeah, it's awesome to be in the seat at the table because you, you have opportunity to kind of contribute. But if they tell you no, what's the worst you can do? Like they say, like they say no, I'm not going to. What are you going to do? Build your own table. You, you just do it exactly. Yeah. Right? So you do. You know, you can keep knocking on that, that door. And if they just decide they're not going to, like, you know, that same energy that you are spending years of like knocking at the door, that same energy you could have spent on just doing your own thing. And then they look around and they look at the table. It's like, oh, here's a new table. This table is actually cool. What is he doing? <laughs> Right. So like I didn't yeah. do it out of animosity because again, a lot of those people came back, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't do it out of animosity. Like I didn't shun people and be like, oh, you, you didn't fuck with me before. And now you won't fuck with me now. But yeah. it was more of like a they just didn't understand what I was trying to do or what we were doing. And just like so I'm just I'm not going to force them. I'm just going to do my own thing. One of all, if you do get a seat at the table, a lot of times there's frustration with that because your contribution might not necessarily be understood or recognized, right? And you know, that's why you see a lot of like people of color in a lot of these corporations be very frustrated because there's a lot of things that are happening and they, like those corporations, they themselves, right, they don't necessarily understand what they are doing, right? And, you know, the people in there, they are not used to or exposed to that kind of like, like might not be exposed to a culture or not exposed to a, a way of living or, or a different type of mindset, right? And especially if it's a, it's a culture that is very mono, right where everyone has yeah. to be a certain way right then you get frustrated because you are in that space right and so i just think that like and this is why i keep saying multiple features if people want to see that table that's awesome right but we should also i think we should also kind of give space to people who don't want that right and give an alternative alternatives are very very important you know so you know my my students why i always try to teach them it's it's i try to let them know what's happening out there in the real world but it's not to break their dreams is to say, hey, this is what's out there. If you are going to buck the system, this is what you're facing. But if also, if you want to swim with the current and go with the system, 
this is what you have to deal with. Jump in, right? So it's not a, you know, destroy the system or break it. It's whatever, what do you want to do? Exactly. Right? And so offering that alternative for like them to figure out how they want to. Some people like the status quo as is. I feel like they can work with it or impact their community. Who am I to tell them that they're wrong? And there are some others who, no matter how much you want to integrate them, they're just not going to be. They're just going to do their own thing. Well, it's not going to be comfortable. They're not going to be comfortable in that status quo. Yeah. Right? And so we should offer them something else. You know, moving into, you know, post-imperial and just kind of your career in general, you know, let's start from the very beginning. You, you know, lived initially in Nigeria and then you moved to, you know, Texas. You know, how is that transition, you know, moving? It was an interesting one. Um, I think there was, I, I've only had culture shock twice in my life. The first one was when I moved to, to Texas. And the second one was when I, I traveled to London and I saw people driving on the other side of the road. Um, but, but, you know, Texas, the reason why it was such a shock was because, you know, and I don't think it's just Texas. I, if, I, if I had moved anywhere in America, I would have been the same thing. I believe so. So I don't want to paint as this Texas as this kind of racist um, uh, place. America is racist, period, <laughs> right? Um, right. So what was interesting was that, like, you know, from watching the movies, you know, I always thought America was this kind of, like, cool place where, like, everyone was, like, kind of friends and, like, you know. But then I get there and there's a, a huge cultural shock on, like, you know, it wasn't cool to be the African kid. So I had to kind of, like, like an, an, an assimilate really, really quickly, you know, developing like Amer like different American accents to fit with different American crowds. Um, and, you know, I, I was able to play that like proper American schoolboy for like three, four years, you know. And then I, my senior year, I discovered uh, a picture of a, Helmut New a picture of Helmut Newton. A, Helmut, a picture taken by Helmut Newton. It was a YSL picture of the smoking jacket. So- At the tuxedo, yeah. Yeah, tuxedo. That picture was so fascinating to me because I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. And I was like, this is strange. Like, but it, it was so fascinating. And then I found out that it was by, you know, it was Yves Saint Laurent. Um, the designer was Yves Saint Laurent. I started doing some research on Yves Saint Laurent and I really loved his work. And that's my, my first interest in fashion. Then went to school for marketing at the University of Houston. And then after that, graduated and then went to Parsons um, to study fashion design. And um, from there, um, was. Parsons was great because for me, um, the exercise, and this is the only thing I would recommend reason for going to fashion school is that like, you can make all your mistakes right there. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I don't like, for me, I don't care whether I went to school or not. If you're a great designer, you're a great designer, right? But the, the advantages of going to school is that like, you, people don't, have to see your mistakes or your blips on a professional setting. So, you know, uh, it really helped me to develop what I wanted to do and how I wanted to design. You know, before I thought I wanted to do like an African version of like Helmut Lang and do like this like minimalist take on like, you know, African design. And I failed at it because I'm not minimalist at all. Maybe my possible mindset, maybe for an execution, I, I failed. And, um, you know, and I thought I wanted my stuff in museums and whatnot. Then I went to work at Oscar de la Renta and I realized like, no, that's not what I want. I actually want um, people to wear my clothes because one thing I, I noticed in, at Oscar was that, you know, he didn't have complicated or complex dresses visually. I mean, if you 
you had to take those things out. They were very complex to make, right? But like visually, they were not very complex. But it wasn't like, like it was like John Galliano's work or Magella. But one thing that I really noticed was that whenever a woman put on an Oscar de la Renta dress, the way they felt, like it almost like they made their day. It, that dress made their day. And I was like, I want my clothes to make people feel that way. And so that's when I started shifting my, my focus about like clothes being made out of love and not some sort of like academic thing that's supposed to be put in, um, on some platform and people can like, you know, intellectually, intellectually masturbate on me. It's like, I didn't want that anymore. It's like, I just wanted yeah. like people to wear my clothes and feel like that kind of warmth and love. And so, you know, from there, after that, I started freelancing with a few other brands and I decided to start my own thing. It's like, okay, I didn't have enough money to make a full collection. So I started off with accessories. And uh, from there, you know, we were able to kind of build because there were stores, the market kind of gave me the permission because there were some stores that be like, you know, we like your ties, but we don't sell ties. If you made shirts in this kind of print, we would buy, right? So, okay. yeah. yeah, so that's how we kind of like, were able to kind of like, jump into like doing ready to wear yeah right? so you know that's how it's been since then and you know we got into i think most of the market the market like i mentioned the markets that really resonated with us initially was japan like right almost at one point almost all our um our retail partners were in japan i think our first two american retailers was sid mash firm and then no man walks alone so which are oh, yeah, know, great story. Yeah, that like Greg and his his team are like awesome, awesome people. Yeah. And then have you been out to Japan and kind of seen that like wow, people walking around with your garments on? It has to be like I was saying anyone walking around with my garments, but um yeah, I've been to Japan twice. Uh when I went to the engineer garment store to check out the um collaboration, most of it had been sold out. And so, you know, I was asking them how I did, and I was like, oh, it did really well, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, well, what was the, the other thing was that the people that were coming in weren't engineer garment fans. Well, post imperial fans. So it's like they're all coming in post imperial head to toe. And I was like, wait, what? Excuse me. <laughs> so that was interesting to know that there was uh, there's a, a following there. And it was kind of like a, where I, I felt like, okay, the, what I'm doing, some people actually like and, and see like there's something here instead of some sort of like, because you know, sometimes as designers, we kind of design in a vacuum. And we don't necessarily know if people actually engage with our clothing. So hearing that was just like, oh, okay. So there are some people who actually like what we do, right? So, right. And, you know, I was going to get into it, you know, later on, but, you know, I guess we can just kind of, you know, talk about that. You know, I told you, like, that's probably when I first, you know, heard about the brand was through the Engineer Garments collaboration that you did in, you know, 2019 for like a summer capsule collection. You know, you did a, some, a few pieces you know, utilizing the Adore, you know, process that, you know, Post-Imperial is pretty much known for. And also I really like the, you know, Patrick that was done. You know, I'm yeah. curious, you know, how did this collaboration, you know, come to be? And, you know, how was it working with, you know, the EG team? Well, it, that collaboration is like maybe four or five years in the making. The first time when we actually talked about this, it, I was still doing my accessories, right? And so, you know, at this point, this was when there were so many, there were just getting snobs, all around the place and so I decided one day to just go door to door to all these stores that I like and like just show them my ties I had um you know one after the other I just kind of like okay there was one store called inventory I don't know if you remember that store you might be too young to remember but it was like a cool store it was it was like a cool snobby store 
right? Um, and when I say snobbing, I don't mean snobbing like luxury kind of like cooling, snobbing kind of like, oh, that's great taste, a great yeah, curation. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, that kind of, right? And so I, I went in, you know, showed them my stuff, just kind of like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. So I leave and there was another store next to them. It was like a vintage store. And I was like, let me just go in. So I, I go in there and I talked to the owner and I was like, I like your stuff, but we only sell vintage stuff here. I do, however, think that Daiki from Engineer Garments might be interested in carrying your stuff. And I was like, Daiki, you know Daiki. He's like, yeah, I surf with him every, every Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. Whatever. I left my push <laughs> and I was like, whatever. And so Sunday evening, I get an email from him. He's like, hey, this is Daiki's email. Hit him up. He's expecting your, like, your, you to hit him up. So I, I hit them up, set up an appointment. I show them the ties. And I was like, this is cool stuff, but we have our own ties. How about we do a collaboration instead? And I was like, all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, cool. okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting that, but yeah, that's much better. And <laughs> even before they started doing like hardcore collaborations, right? And they were like, we don't know how we're going to set it up. So we started doing like a few prototypes of fabrics here and there, but we never were able to kind of like get our schedules on, on you know, because they're always like busy. And I, and I was working directly with Daiki. Like wow. I was, he, he didn't put me to like side with one team. Like I was working right. directly with Daiki. How was that? Like, I feel like he's like this elusive person, like no one sees him. You know, how is that? To be well, working cool. that he's closely? a very quiet kind of guy. And then like when he goes, like, you know, starts talking about clothes, he can get into like a soft rant. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, but he's very like, he loves what he does. And he's very into, you know, it's the same thing about like making clothes with love. He loves like, he, he's like, if you mishandle the clothing, he gets very upset. And it's like, people, this was made with love. People use their hands to make this. You have to respect it, right? Almost like he understands that like, we're not the only ones that have spirits, like inanimate objects to have spirits, materials have spirit. You have to treat them with respect. A few years after, right? We, you know, we just couldn't get our schedules together. But then um, there was one time we we're just like, yo, let's just do it. Like, no, nah, let's just do it. And so it's like, what do you have? I said, this is what I have right now. And so he put together some things and I was like, okay, this is cool. Let's go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, all right. So I was like, all right. So in terms of the budget, what should we do? It's like, you just, let's just wear the clothes and shoot the lookbook. I was like, me, it's like, yeah, just do it. And I was like, okay. So that's what I cool. <laughs> I got my, my, my friends, we um, took the samples to Little Senegal where I lived in, in Harlem. And we just took some, you know, some pictures there. And, you know, that's how the collaboration came out. Wow, what a crazy story. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, because people just think like, because it was so weird, because you know, everyone always asks me like, how did you get that? How did you get They just don't, Engineer Garments doesn't just collaborate with anyone. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I, they just, they, that, that's the thing with Daiki. When Daiki feels something, right? Like, he'll just go with it, right? And, for him, I don't know, he just saw something that was cool and what I was doing. Because again, I only went there for them to stock my ties. I didn't ties. Even go in and then walked out with the collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? And, and at the time he said that I was really small. I don't even know if I had, maybe, did I have any stores stocked? Maybe one or two, but it wasn't anything big. And I was like, like, you mean collaboration with like clothes? Like, excuse me, right? So it was, it was, um, 
it was a really cool moment. And it's, I think it's one of the highlights I, I've had in my career, just working with them. They are like really, they were a really awesome team to work with. And also it's like, they're just inspiring. They, 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 I love how they, they frame their company in a way that like, I don't know how much they do, but they do pretty well, but they're under the radar and they don't just fall into the hype. And if, and if hype comes great, if it doesn't, it's fine too. They're just coasting. Right. Yeah. This is operating. As a business, right? You don't want to be like high peaks and valleys. You just want to be like this. Right? And I feel like they're just steady. I feel like they're always steady. They always have their consistent um followers. They don't ditch their their core um customers to chase like uh whether it's Gen Z today or Gen Y or whoever, just because you know they want to like, you know you know like fill out like their profit margins it's it's just like they understand their core customers and they, they really really focus on making sure that core customers are satisfied with the products that they made right and they don't they don't chase people like okay drake today might wear needles and needles goes berserk i'll tell you they those guys at the company they're like okay cool uh, surgeon needles all right cool yeah whatever yeah and <laughs> no seriously that's how they yeah. are all right, cool, right? And, you know, they don't allow the hype to get to them. And I think that's one of the, the things that I really like about them is this sense of humility. It's not just in their closing because you see it in the closing, but in the way they operate to as well. They do, they, Daiki can go around and act like he's, he's the shit, but he doesn't. He just comes in with his flip-flops, his Birkenstocks, shorts, T-shirt, designs, has the sketches all over the place, bolts of fabric everywhere. And, you know, that's what he does. He does what he loves. And just goes to work and it's cool that that collaboration came so organically and just like for just an appreciation for what you do and what you, yeah. you know create yeah. yeah and at the time when we were even doing a collaboration there was a reboot collaboration he was having a hookah collaboration so he didn't have to do it with me like you know like who am i right like you didn't have to do any of that so i really really appreciate that they took like a leap of faith in me i'm really really like yeah i'm really like happy that that thing went yeah, you know, and back to, you know, just post-imperial, you know, you said in your previous interviews that this kind of operates beyond fashion, you know, it goes beyond that, and that it's, you know, merely kind of one of your vehicles or tools that you use to do a thing like you like to say is myth-making, you know, you don't subscribe to kind of like the more modern, you know, what people are commonly doing right now, which is, you know, narrative, you don't really subscribe to that, you know, use of, you know, storytelling. Yeah, yeah. because I I feel like it's a very colonial way of telling. It's like this idea of power, like grabbing the, trying to be the one who is telling the story, right? Um, And um, a lot of like indigenous and pre-colonial like um, cultures, their storytelling is very inclusive, right? Everyone is part of it. So it's not like a, you know, as a black person, I want to tell my story or like we tell our stories. And it's like, like what we're just doing is putting a black face on a very colonial way of storytelling, right? And it's like, who does that work for, right? And what happens is that when you do that, right, the gaze upon the product that, or the person that you're making, the thing that you're making, the story that you're making, right? Everyone becomes kind of like your subject towards that story, right? And then it's a gaze that happens, right? And it might not be a white gaze anymore, it might be a black gaze, but in my opinion, any gaze is problematic because you are, you are objectifying whoever is under that case, right? So it doesn't matter if the black person that is, or a person of color that is doing the case, it's still an issue because you are not recognizing the humanity 
right in that person that you're doing yeah. so um and this is the thing that i i really want to apply into post imperial and it's not something that we we do perfectly but it's something that i'm always investigating like well that thing i just did is that really something that is empathic or is that something that's really decolonizing or is that something that was was that myth making or is that me being in my ego right and telling the story and that's what narrative is an ego-driven way of storytelling right if you look at um a lot of um cultures that have mythology as a backdrop or backbone of like what they do especially like african cultures that you know, usually speak use oral way of um communicating instead of writing think about like how story is or communication is is perceived within that culture so for example right if you want to talk about like let's look at like yoruba i don't know if you are familiar with yoruba mythology right um yoruba mythology has quite a few pantheon of gods so yeah. let's take ogun for example or no let's just take shango for example let's say for example i tell you a story about shango and i say shango came down to earth as a rat right then you you go tell that story to someone else and say shango came down to earth as a snake the person you just told says Chango came down to earth as a pig. Within the Western frame of storytelling, that's a problematic way of storytelling because it's a plot hole, right? They are saying that like you, the story is problematic because it's not telling you how Chango really came down to earth. But with oral myth making, how he came down is not the main thing. The main thing you're supposed to take away from that story is that Chango came down to earth. That's all you should put focusing on, right? But look at what has happened in that process, right? Everyone that's in the oral, um, that oral part, they understand the main crux of the story, the main foundation. Django yeah. came to her, right? They just added their own thing. But what has happened, they've engaged in the story, right? So they now become te textbooks. That's why in oral cultures, they don't need textbooks, right? It's because everyone knows the story. In written cultures, we and that's why they don't have hierarchies of like people or like holding things. Like if you look at like written cultures, people have like there are different forms of hierarchy of people who are writing the story. So the people within the culture don't necessarily have to have the story embedded in their heads, right? So they because they can always reference a written book or reference something or go to someone to tell them, like you know that's that gatekeeping thing that you know you do. So that's how I want Postimperial to operate in a way that like there's the foundation of post-imperial and then whoever we're working with adds to that foundation of what post-imperial is like, right? So whether it's the people who are designing with like um, one of uh, the person who does it's Ashley Camps, when she designs, I really don't give like to give her too much like, of a leeway of where we're going. I'm just like, this is inspiration. These are some of the colors I'm working with. Do your thing. Right, yeah. Right. And so it's just adding to, to what we do at Post Imperial. Same yeah. thing with uh, photographers that we work with as well. It's just like, you know, I was thinking about this, but do your thing. Right. So, um, and even the dyers that we work with, they really, really inform how we design. Because, you know, so like I will give them like a print uh, that will be like a polka dot. I don't really, I'll just tell them like small or large. I don't really give them parameters on how big it's supposed to be. And depending on who it is, a small dot might be like really tiny. Yeah, it might vary. 
It's small day, it varies, right? <laughs> but that's how story is. Story is really fluid, right? Mm. You know, when we talk about, oh, we are looking for the truth. The truth is fluid. Depending on who you talk to, the truth is always fluid. That's why you hear people say my truth and your truth, right? And so there's, there's no hard, you know, fact. And, and the way narrative, what it does, it, it gives us this false sense of control that we think we have. But life is so chaotic and it's a light and illusion. We don't have control of anything, right? And so when you, you surrender to that fact and you allow people to enter and help you build this foundation, or this mythology, it becomes a much more robust story than you saying that you have to tell your story this way. And it's an ego-driven way of, of storytelling, in my opinion. You're changing the whole way I think about it. And, you know, I think moving forward, I'll be, you know, adapting the way I do it. Even through a podcast, you know, I'm always asking, you know, I want to share someone's journey, the guest I have. Yeah. But it's like, that's kind of egocentric, as you said, like me here sharing their story, like, or being a part of it in any way, it's kind of just allowing it to be, you know, more fluid in a way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a very, like I said, it's a very colonial way of like how we've just, we've, we just think very colonial, you know, it's the way of like this power dynamic of extracting or placing our power somewhere or, or planting our flag. And we think that, you know, because those things have hurt us, you know, marginalized us, um, and we think that the way to kind of get out of those things is to actually apply those same rules to ourselves. That's not. Yeah. If, if it affects, if, if white people are using it to affect us, the black people that will use it will affect other black people too. <laughs> it's not good. It doesn't fix it. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, this is an analogy I keep using all the time. It's like, you see a cis white, cisgendered white male driving a car. And you're upset that the car is not flying. And you're saying, why is this car not flying? Why? I'm so upset this car is not flying. You know what would change? We'll make this car fly. If we put a black person in there, this car will fly. And the car doesn't fly. <laughs> no, it, that's not the case. <laughs> it doesn't fly, right? Yeah. I, because that's what the car was designed to do. The car was designed to drive, right? And so, you know, the two things that you can take away from there is, is that, you know, it's very hard to, I mean, it's very hard to kind of change things um, within like systems, right? Um, and the other thing is that like, think about the pressure of that black person now having to try to make this car fly because, right. you, like, you know, so you kind of, it's like, you're trying to make him do the impossible. Yeah. You can try to put wings on the car, but what are the chances that a car is going to fly? You know, so it's like, <laughs> but anyways, it, it's the, those things, you know, are destructive for a reason. Mm -hmm. right? So, um, and it's not even about like, yeah, they're destructive for a reason. And it's not even about like necessarily like destroying things for ourselves. Like when we say decolonization, it's basically more about like these systems are abusive and we need to just cut them off for now so that we have autonomy. And then once we have autonomy, we can engage with those systems and say like, okay, how what's going on right yeah uh, and that's that's the thing about power dynamics that like i want us to kind of like really sit down and like truly figure out like what are what what do we mean when we say we want like black people to be free or marginalized people to be free like do we really think black billionaires are going to solve that yeah 
And I want to get into how you bring this mindset to another core pillar of the brand, you know, humanizing materials and bringing that to the forefront. And I think, you know, thinking of that as kind of a way to one, be more sustainable, utilizing the stuff that's around you, you know, lower emission, but also to kind of bring more depth to, you know, each piece, you know, yeah. can you share more about this? And also I want to get into, you know, how your goal of producing all of your garments in Africa is going, especially everything with COVID. Yeah, well, before we start, I, you know, the word sustainability is such a heavy thing. And um, I don't believe Pussycat is a sustainable brand. Um, I, I don't think any fashion brand is sustainable. If a brand wants to be truly sustainable, they shouldn't make any clothes. Yeah, that's the common thing that's being said, yeah. Right, so um, I, you know, but what we try to do is we try to be much more responsible in the, the practices that we are taking and like just sitting in the troubles of like, okay, these are the things that we want done, right? We have different milestones we want to reach. How do we reach them? What can we do in our capacity? Because, you know, we don't want to fall into the um, social media trap of being able to like um, checking boxes of all the, the work things that we've done, right? Because every business or corporation to some degree is problematic, right? And trying to try check work boxes to show that like, to get some kind of like, um, uh, like points, when that's not the case, that's not what we're trying to do. You know, we're just trying to do our best in every way, shape, or form. Um, but in terms of humanizing materials, my friend Sita Solanki, um, who has a practice called Mata, um, she, the first time I met her, I asked her what she does, and she said that she, you know, she helps people with humanizing materials. And that was the first time I just realized that, like, that's something that we, you know, but I won't always do at Post-Imperial, but she made me go above and beyond in that sense. It's like, she made me reframe my relationship with materials. And now my relationship with materials, I see it more as a collaborative thing, right? So looking at the materials and seeing how we can work with them, right? Looking at dead stuff and see how we can work with dead, dead stuff. So humanizing materials allows you to see the materials in a different way and not as waste, Right, trying to give them the highest value and recognizing their highest value, kind of almost giving them their, their kind of autonomy as well. Is this kind of anim practice of animism that you see a lot of like African cultures where you know they feel like, or indigenous cultures, not just African cultures, where every inanimate object has kind of a spirit or has kind of like its own soul, right? And so you have to treat it like you treat like a human being. Yeah. Right? Not just using it to yeah. for whatever purpose, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like it's kind of taking man out of the center of like the discussion of you know value, right? And um, trying to kind of connect us back into the circle, right? And like, how do we extract and then take back? So because I don't think there's anything wrong with extracting. The problem is that we extract and don't put back. I think we're probably the only animals in on on the planet. That extract and don't put back like even when we die we put ourselves in coffins right <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's so petty it's like the earth is not going to get anything from us right. right um so and and usually when we put back it's through like initiatives or something it's not necessarily something that like we do and we just kind of like it's enough to go we have to go out of our way to do it yeah right, right. and then pat ourselves on the back for planting trees right you know, so the, the that conversation helped me look at materials in a much different light and not see them as working for me, but me working with them. So they are like ultimate collaborators, 
right? I mean, we always have worked in that way, but I wasn't looking at it that way. But now I'm much more conscious and it's like, yeah, like, you know, talking to the fabric and saying like, how can we work together? Can we die you? If we die you, how, how does that come out? Like, is it, is it going to damage you? We don't want to damage, you don't want to add trauma to you, you know? So, you know, looking at it that way has kind of allowed me to frame materials in a much different light. So I try as much as possible, like, you know, like I said, using the dead stuff fabrics that we use or trying to using, um, you know, fabrics that are closer to us. Because one of the things that like, I hear people talking about all the time is like, oh, use organic fabric. Be cool to use organic fabric, but um, I think it'd be much cooler to just use the fabric that's already available instead of having to use energy to make organic fabric, right? There's, a, there's tons of fabric out there that we can actually use right in here, right? They, they've already used the energy for them, so we might as well just use them. Or, you know, there's a local cotton factory in, in Nigeria. Rather use that local cotton factory than ship um, organic cotton from India or from the US or from China. It just makes much more sense for me to like, you know, use that local machinery um that, that local uh, mill yeah and i'm actually kind of curious i mean with all of the you know humanizing materials and changing your mindset and reframing it you know has this led to some interesting experimentation when it comes to design like you know i mean that's always happened for us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've always experimented with different types of things so um you know it just makes me much more mindful now it's like you know i'm not bending the fabric to but we never have bent it like i said we've always been very mindful but uh, we've always practiced that way we've always started with the fabrics but now we are way more mindful now about like what can we do with this fabric like for example we dye a lot of velvet and uh corduroy the first time we dyed a heavy nap fabric so nap fabrics are fabrics that have like a high raised um uh, texture so it's not, it's something that's like raised. So the first nap fabric we ever dyed was a corduroy. And the first time we, we dyed that, we did a very intricate print on, um, pattern on it. And it was such a pain for the dyers uh, to take out. And then also for the fabric too as well, we felt like we were straining the fabric too much. And so I just decided like, all right, so how can we work together? I just realized that with nap fabrics, you make the prints a little bigger and then sparse. You don't do anything to elaborate on them. And that's what we've done since, you know? So, you know, it's, it's looking at things like that and like realizing like, oh, okay, I harmed this fabric this way. How can I work with it next time that doesn't harm it? Or like, what, what kind of other print can we do that can make it feel beautiful and all those types of things. So like, yeah, I, I try as much as possible to talk to my fabric. I know I sound crazy, but that's what I do. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, I just really love hearing more about the creative process and, you know, you know, moving on. I mean, the brand has grown, as you were saying earlier, you know, it's really taken off. I feel like I see it a lot more, in, especially in the last few months, you know, how does it feel? And especially seeing like, you know, Zendaya where, you know, in her cover issue for GQ, like, how does that feel? That was actually amazing because um, Mobolaji, the um, fashion director at GQ, you know. So good. He's yeah, great. He's, he's amazing. 
he he reached out to me. He's like, yo, do they never tell me like usually who they are shooting for. They just like, do you have any samples? I'm like, yeah. And then I saw him in Nigeria, and he's like, yo, Cindy, what your stuff? And I was like, oh, cool. I'm like, yeah, it's gonna make the cover. I was like, wait, excuse me. <laughs> like I had to process that. So like I said, the GQ guys they've been like really awesome. But I, you, you know the the follow me like we don't have a lot of followers on Instagram, but I feel like we have a lot of people who are who have eyes on what we're doing. So it's it's been an, an interesting thing where like I don't even know how to gauge like like Instagram followers anymore. It's not something I don't I don't know how to do anything anymore. I, I don't think I ever knew how to do that, those things. Um, but you know because how many people can say they have a cover something where that appeared they have a product that appeared on the cover of major publication and they have less than ten thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah, not many. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Not many. Right. Oh, I, and you see that you don't have that many like um, followers per se, but like then I've been into almost like 200 retail doors, right? So, so you're doing it, something so, right. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. sometimes like social media doesn't really tell you the like the whole story. Yeah. Right? So it's, um, it's been interesting just seeing like, you know, different people like either rec- like discovering the brand uh, or like who have always been there and I've like been supporting us from day one. You know, I'm, I'm always open to like people joining the village and like, you know, wanting to contribute in one way or the other. Like even when I talk about myth-making, like this to me is myth-making too as well. Like what we're doing right now is myth-making because you're adding to the, the foundation of post imperial. Like people wearing the clothes, that's myth-making too as well. It's part of the myth-making, you know, it's part of the mythology, right? Um, yeah. So um, yeah, I'm just happy that people are also part of putting the mythology together. Uh, that's all I want. It's just, you know, the more people collaborating, it, it just to see, it becomes a very um, organic way of, of storytelling. I know some sort of like, not some sort of like, like I, I, I like something much more organic. I know something that's very like, it feels like it's, it's like tailored for some type of algorithm so you can feel like you're woke or you're this or you're that. Yeah, it's very freeing. You know, going into, you know, talking about the 2020 fall collection, you know, you worked with one of the, like an OG, like Joshua Kissy. I've been, you know, following him since, you know, street etiquette back in the day. You know, how was it, you know, shooting that campaign and, you know, little Senegal, New York? Yeah, um, we, so the way I met Josh, there are a lot of people that have been trying to put me in touch with Josh for a long time. And we just never were able to kind of connect. And then I was at, during fashion week, we were at a show and I saw him and I was like, oh, that's Josh. And then we started, he was with a bunch of my friends. And then we started talking. And I was like, by the way, I'm the guy who everyone's been sending emails. I was like, oh, snap. (laughs) (laughs) And then we started having, um, you know, we had a conversation. I was telling him about my stuff. And then he came to the studio and I'm like, yo, we got to work together. And so we tried to figure out like what would be the best kind of um, project to work on. And then this opportunity came for us to kind of put this together. And um, you know, we, he connected us with a few people here and there. And, you know, with that, I just kind of got everyone to kind of like contribute into like putting the story together. And we were able to find people who actually live or work in Little Senegal and uh, like creatives and, you know, put that together. The thing about Little Senegal, what I found very interesting and the reason why I went through using that avenue to talk about Harlem was because it's a it's an unknown neighborhood in Harlem. When people think about Harlem, they think about like oh, the Apollo, yeah, Walker Park, 
you know, it's like this paint by the numbers type of thing. Right. And, you know, um, for me, I'm very interested in trying to kind of create for me something that doesn't necessarily fall within the algorithm of like what black creativity looks like, right? Not to say all those things are not cool, right? It's but not the only thing. Yeah, it's not it the only like, image. It feels yeah. like it's the only thing, right? And I feel like Little Senegal for me has been such an inspiration living in New York. Like, that was the place that I always went to. It was the closest thing that, you know, you know, as a Nigerian, it was the closest thing that felt like to West Africa. Like when I wanted food, I'd go there. When, you know, on Fridays doing, um, you know, when everyone is in the mosque and they're coming out, they just look so cool, right? And um, there was just something about that neighborhood for me that really, really touches. Um, and it's my favorite neighborhood in New York. And I was like, yeah, this would actually be a cool way to actually kind of like engage on a really different way that people don't necessarily see, right? Um, and even when we're shooting, it's like, you know, you know, Josh was asking me like, like different references and what we wanted to shoot. And like, we were like, oh, you know, thinking about like Malik Sibidi, I was like, no, no, that's where everyone goes to Malik Sibidi, let's not do that. And so it was, you know, but, you know, the contribution was a very interesting, we didn't have any set of like what we were going to do we just like even the the um the models when they came in they chose some of the clothes that they were going to wear. Yeah, they can just pick whatever they want yeah, in the rack, right? Yeah. Like and then we're not like okay, put this in and put this on. So it was all about like what fit their vibe, you know. And yeah, it was it was a very cool like process working with Josh. I'd love to work with him again. Did you ever figure out you know? Who makes the best, you know, jollof rice, you know, Ghana, Nigeria? No, it's Nigerians. We do. (laughs) What am I figuring out there? That's not the, there's nothing to figure out there. We make the best. That's, that's not the, we make the best. It's not the, it's nothing to figure out there. Yeah, that's the end of discussion. (laughs) Yeah, it's the end of, it wasn't, it wasn't a discussion. It's a statement. Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing. What are we, what are we discussing here? The sky is blue. Do you discuss that? No. <laughs> I just make the best. Like next. <laughs> any any spot that people should go to when they're in Little Senegal? Oh man, the uh, Basads, which is on it's on one twenty and is it Frederick Douglass? Yeah, one twenty and Frederick Douglass around there. I'm trying to think of other places now. I'm running. I'm my. I'm running blank. But there are quite a few other there are a few places. There's no place in, in Little Senegal that you can go to that you won't like. Um, I think Pekin. Um, well, the ambassade is the one that everyone goes to. Yeah. But there are quite a few that I'm just running like my, I'm going blank right now. I can't think of any of the, the, the um, restaurants at this moment. Just go support them, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, food is good. Senegalese food is awesome. Yeah. Right? Um, so. That job is, is second. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, anytime I have, you know, designers on, I always like to share some of my favorites from the brand and see if you can, you know, just, you know, add some more, you know, insight behind, you know, the construction of the pieces, you know, something that may not come through through images online. Okay. First piece I want to talk about, now I might butcher these names. I really hope I don't. Akoi? Uh, <laughs> yeah, the Koi, which one? The Koi part of the jacket. The whole suit, I think, together is just amazing. I just saw that Rachel posted a picture in it. I was like, yeah. wow, that looks incredible. I really wish I had that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How is it working with that? Yeah, the Koi suit has been kind of like a, a it, it's like an updated version of like the suit that we've, we've been making. We used to call it the standard suits. And 
the pants were basically kind of like a standard pant. Oh, um, no, it was Lagos pants actually. But we updated them uh, to make it much more like the pants to be a little like um, not loose, um, more tailored, right? Uh, we gave them like um, like a permanent stitch um, in the front, uh, a, a stitch crease on the front, and then um, we took away some buttons. So we changed the button from two buttons, um, and in sleeves we only added one button in the surgeon cuff. I really love that jacket because it, it, like I said, it's it's kind of for me that the sport coat is the foundation of how I dress, right? And it's kind of like indicative of like how I dress where if I'm wearing a suit, I'm lying down and I don't care if it's going to be wrinkled, it's okay, right? And then we made this one in a velvet, right? And if you look at the, the um, print, it's very, like I said, if you look, we, it's very sparse. The print that we did, it's big and it's sparse. We didn't put it in, like, we put it in different places. We didn't um, do too much like intricate designs on that fabric, right? But yeah, it's a, it's a very relaxed, the pants are relaxed. They're not like skinny, right? Uh, they're tailored, but they feel very, very comfortable. Like every, like wearing that suit, I have one that I made for myself custom. It's like a chocolate version. Ooh, um, nice, yeah. The stem print uh, that I, I wear it all the time. Uh, can you walk us through the dyeing process? So yeah, the, so, yeah. so all the fabrics we get, they, they come out white, right? Um, so we, we find fabric that are PFD, which is prepared for a dye. Right. And so um, they prepare the, the dye in a vat, right? And then they dye each fabric like five yard increments. Can't dye it all at the same time. So, but before they do the dye, so they will put a paste on and design whatever the design is on the fabric, right? And then once they do that, they allow the, the wax to dry. And then once it dries, they put it inside the, the dye, depending on what color we want to be like, there for like five to 30 minutes, right? Bring it out, um, allow it to dry a little bit more, then put in another um, vat of hot water so to take out all the wax, right? And then um, just hang it to dry. And then we now do one more, um, when we, we ship it to our factories, we do one more like industrial wash to kind of like make sure that all the excess dye is gone. So that's basically the, the dyeing process. Nice. And where's that done? Is that in, you know, Kenta or is that? The dyeing is done in two places. Um, Lagos, Aja in Lagos um, okay. with Adirel Lounge. They have like a, a dye house community that we've worked with for quite some time. Uh, they actually do some really, really cool stuff with um, with um, the people that they work with in their community. They actually have like different education initiatives that they have in there. Uh, and then the second one is Afro Pride. We just started working with them. Yeah, I know Shobu. Oshobo is five hours away from um, Lagos, and it's the birthplace of Adire, I believe. And um, Oshobo is just awesome because, like, the dying is basically, Adire is basically something sacred there, right? Um, and we used to have a lot of dyers that worked there, but quite a lot of them would just, like, randomly quit because, you know, it was not something that they could necessarily sustain themselves with financially. So they would have to either go to college or do something like some kind of vocational school or, you know, go work as a banker, you know? So it was very, um, it was, we would always have to kind of teach people like next season, get someone else and like, like go through our process over and over yeah. again. Uh, but then we found Adirela on the Nigeria Lagos and, you know, she already had like a, like a constant 
you know, community of like guys that she worked with and we're like, okay, let's, you know, stick with her. So she manages all that for us. Uh, but see. then uh, the Afro, Afro Pride in Ushogo, we just found, discovered, um, someone co just connected them with us a few months ago. And, uh, you know, so far the work he's done for us has been really good. You know, the next piece I wanted to talk about was the uh, Acacia. Acacia Japan. Yeah. Jacket. Both. Uh, both? Uh, I was gonna say the pant. I really like the pant. I feel like that's something I would be like a staple in my wardrobe. Yeah, those pants are so good. Uh, I wish, I wish I, I set myself up with like three or four of them. I only have one. That's my the story of my life with my products. Like, there's always one thing that I want for myself, and then uh, once it drops on the website, it's like I can't have it because someone else already got it. Like, I had one time. I, I there was a green suit that I got for myself, a green Sierra suit. And I had been dreaming about this suit. And then as soon as like we had dropped everything, someone emailed me. We didn't have a green suit on the website. Someone emailed me and was like, yo, I really love this, this suit. Would you happen to have it in green? I was like, God. <laughs> You're like, we actually do, but. <laughs> yes, that's what I was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> I, was like, oh. I was like, come on, man. Like, and it, that day, I was going to wait that day and I got the email and I was like, Got to be kidding me! Got to be kidding me! Um, but anyways, um, the Ikeja pant is is a new style for us. So, you know, usually like oh, the, the, our best selling pant before was the um, Lagos pant, and that pant was, you know, it, it, I liked it, and it was something that like we we did for many years. It was like our second best selling product, but then I felt like we needed to update it a little bit. It wasn't, it wasn't too tailored, but it wasn't, and it wasn't too wide. It wasn't too, it wasn't skinny at all. Right, yeah. But I wanted something that was much, 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 much wider, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny how, like, you know, we created this and then COVID happened and everyone wants those pants because it just makes sense for their lifestyle right now. And it's not like we didn't design it for for that. We, we already designed it before the COVID, but, like, I wanted something that was wide and that was big and that I felt like was free. And I also like the idea of playing with, like, different volumes. So, like, maybe the jacket or the pants are, like, um, the jackets are, like, not form-fitting but they're not too loose but then the, the pants all would like be like very loose i really like that kind of like armani um silhouette so um I, you know for me it, it it was and then adding the the rib chenille just gave it another kind of like made it even extra special right yeah but that nice detail very very soft like chenille it looked you know, when you touch corduroy, corduroy is, is not really soft. It's very, it's it's kind of not thick, but it has this, it, it it's not, it doesn't feel like, it, it it's not soft, but chenille is very soft. <laughs> chenille feels like a towel. So it feels <laughs> like I wear a towel on you, like glass pants. So yeah. it's, it's a really, really comfortable pants. Um, and I, you know, it's one of my favorite, that and an Ijebu shirt have become one of my favorite, like my favorite things that I've designed for Post Imperial. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you. I was like, what have you been into lately? You know, what have you been wearing? Yeah, the Jabuti, well, not now because it's cold, but um, what I've been wearing has been, um, of course, the Ikoi jackets that I have. Um, the sweatshirt, the Kenda sweatshirts, I really like. I have one in um, an orange. I really like that. And um, my um, Ikeja pants, I wear them all the time, all the time. Definitely. And you were hinting at, you know, earlier in the pod, just kind of, you know, you've been thinking a lot about the upcoming collection, 
you know, what should people be, you know, keeping an eye out for, you know, in the near future? I don't say too much, um, but I, I think people who have followed Post Imperial from day one will be surprised that we're bringing some things back, some friends back that a lot of people have asked me about. Um, some new styles, um, some new kind of fabrics that we're working with as well. And um, like a very encompassing story for nice. this. And it's like, you know, like, but, um, what I'm happy about this time is that like, now I have time to actually tell, like help build this mythology, right? Mm -hmm. um, whereas before when I was doing everything myself, I didn't have time for all of that. So. Yeah, having a team helps. Yeah, it does. It does. I was drowning in like responding to this retailer, responding to that production person, trying to put together all the cutting tickets, putting all the invoices, and it's like drowning. And then it's like, oh, I still have to put together a collection. Oh, man. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, being able to kind of like put it all together has been really, really awesome. Right. And then, you know, just you know, showing other people that like are being part of the process. So you should add this here, you should do this, you should do that, right? And like the initiatives that we're trying to set in within it too as well. I'm really excited for them. So we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But just stay tuned. It's, it's, I, I, I think people will really, really be satisfied with what we have. Definitely. And if, you know, running a, a fashion brand wasn't enough, you also are a, you know, adjunct professor at Parsons, you know, School of Design. You started in 2019, you know, as you said earlier, you know, you teach a class on, you know, creating fashion shows that really, you know, minimize or, you know, have no negative human impact on the environment. Yeah. You know, how has, you know, that been and, you know, has the wait list for the class gone up in the, in the last couple of years? Uh, well, this semester I'm not teaching, but yes, um, the, the wait list went up from last semester. It went from like 14 to 22, but I think that's what just happened with all the virtual classes. They, they probably added up. Um, but I, the class has always gotten um, referrals because a lot of people really like what we are trying to do or what I've been doing uh, with the class. It, in terms of what we teach in the class, uh, it started off as, you know, something where I was trying to expand the minds of students on what a fashion show should be. You know, because usually when you think of a fashion show, you think of like runway, but fashion show should be more than that. The fashion show in my class, the definition of fashion show is any medium you use to tell your fashion um, idea. So that can yeah. be lookbook. It could be a video. It could be an essay. Right. Which is Whatever. super important now. I mean, since we really can't have fashion shows as yeah, they exactly. previously were. So, yeah. You know, so I broke it down into three parts. Uh, it was what is... How is the fashion show relevant today? So, you know, they would have to do an analysis on the fashion show. And then it would be the logistics of putting the fashion show together. And then they would have to put a proposal together for that. And then the third part would be um, the financial aspect. I mean, how do you put budget together at fashion show? But then midway before COVID happened, I started kind of like changing the format of the class midway. And then COVID happened. Right. And then was like, okay, this is what we were talking about. This is this is the reason why we've been questioning fashion shows. Because in yeah. the class, I had been questioning runway shows the whole time. And so some students were just like, is this what I didn't take a class for you to be questioning why we need to do runway? <laughs> like I didn't think I thought I read the, the class yeah, description. Right? It's like 
did you take this to tell us not to do runway shows? And that's not what I was trying to tell them, but, you know, but then, you know, from there, I was able to kind of figure out the format that I wanted to do. And like now the format that we, we do for, for um, that I've been doing is one that focuses on three things. Um, the non-human aspect of impact that fashion show does. So the students have to put together a fashion show throughout the whole semester that focuses on three things. Right? The non-human aspect is the first thing. And they have to, in their project, focus on what are the aspects of um, their fashion show that, that positively impacts like the non-human aspect. So that is whether it's animal, whether it's plants or whether it's inanimate objects. So if you put together, if you decide you're going to do a fashion show, right? Uh, you put together a set. What happens to the set afterwards? Okay. Yeah. Um, what if if you are? Uh, what are the ways you can minimize things like energy, like lightning, conserve energy? So maybe you you show at a building outside of that building. Use their instead of like renting chairs, you could use the chairs for that building. Do it outside where there's natural light. Right. The second, you know, so things like that. The second part was the human aspect, where which is what are the initiatives that you can do to actually foster positive human interactions. So, like looking at like how you're your interns, how you're working with them, uh, the um, groups or the vendors that you work with. How what is your relationship with them? Exploring that, right? Um, even looking at like things like how are you? Is your stuff? Who is engaging with your product or with yeah. your show? And then the third part was the financial part, which is, you know, it's great for you to have all these amazing ideas. And a lot of my students came up with brilliant ideas. Uh, let me tell you, like one of them had a, a show where that was focused on augmented reality. Another one had one where it was like a, a video, like um, book where you can choose how to end the story. Like you just choose your story as you're just going. Oh yeah, right. yeah. I, uh, another one had something one elaborate um, show where, you know, she showed at the former minefield uh, in in Paris, right? And um, the invitation were seed packets, right? Um, and so when the the um, the people who are invited to the show when they were done, they would plant the seeds in that former minefield. They, just, they came up with like so amazing, amazing things, but I wanted to see like how they could budget this thing. Yeah. So the financial aspect, this is all great, but then in the real world, how can you make this a, a thing that can like happen, right? Um, so, and it seems like, I mean, you're in tune with, you know, the next generation of designers and creatives in general, you know, are you just proud of what you're seeing from like your students? Yeah, yeah, I actually, um, I, the funny thing is before I actually, started teaching again i was very cheated with the industry because i was just like it just felt like it was not even from a creative standpoint because you know people just it's not creative anymore i think sometimes when we say that it's just us people getting old but it was more of like things were very self-serving you know and even like you know people wanting to like this narrative kind of storytelling it felt very self-serving it's like who who is this for is it for you i mean is it for the people like actual proposal for your ego, right? I just kind of got very jaded. But then teaching, it opened up a, like it reinvigorated me in a way that I was like, 
seeing students being excited about a show. Because I was like, I remember when I was in this situation, when I was in this same scenario where I couldn't wait to talk about this one show that I saw. You know, and, you know, it reminded me why I love fashion. And so teaching basically possibly saved me to be, still be in this industry. Or maybe, wow. maybe that was, that was <laughs> probably, that's probably my mistake. I probably shouldn't have thought. <laughs> yeah, but it, if not for teaching, I probably would not, I would have probably left a long time ago. This has been an amazing conversation. I think this is the longest podcast <laughs> that I've recorded, but it's all been amazing. You know, uh, where can the people follow you? Um, you can find me at postimperial on Instagram or postimperial.com. Uh, post-imperial.com on, or post-imperial on Instagram. I told you I like to talk. Hey, <laughs> and it was really interesting. And, you know, you kind of get that from the brand and what I could gauge from previous interviews that, like, you really, you know, get into why and the meaning behind everything you do. And it's it's very inspiring. It's definitely, you know, reframed my mind. Yeah, it's good. Thanks. Uh, it's good to, to hear. Yeah, that's what we're just trying to do, just make people see, reframe things so that people can see it in a different way. That's all. Yeah, I wish I had been in that class. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you again. This has really been great. All right, man. Keep in touch, man. Thanks for having me. Review. If you enjoy the content in the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media to stay updated on all new podcast episodes. You can follow us on Instagram at the Fashion Collector Podcast. You can follow my personal account at Alex Walker PH. You can follow us on Twitter at TFC underscore pod. And with that being said, I'll catch you all next week.